So this is a notebook. It is a very humble, modest looking little thing. It's quite small. The binding is damaged. A very sensitive ear for what language is and what language does. It has suffered, clearly suffered damp, wet damage. You can see the stains here on the various pages. She's writing as a writer who's come to medicine, and I think that makes her very different. In it, Ethna McCarthy has placed on one page, the left-hand page, a paper, a newspaper cutting pasted onto the notebook paper. And on the facing page, frequently, she has written out the poem in her own hand. When I read them the first time, I said, thought to myself, these have to be published. discovery of the work of the poet, linguist and medical doctor Ethna McCarthy can be traced back to a meeting in Paris in the 1970s when Owen O'Brien, a cardiologist and a great admirer of the work of Samuel Beckett, first met the writer and critic Con A.J. Leventhal. I met Con in Paris and um, I can't remember exactly where we met but I know that we became very good friends and he was wonderful company and, and a marvellous literary presence who's been much underestimated, I think. Through Con Leventhal, Owen was introduced to Samuel Beckett and went on to write The Beckett Country, Samuel Beckett's Ireland. He also got to know Con Leventhal's partner, Marion. I became quite friendly with her, of course, but I didn't really know much about his previous wives and I knew very little about Etna. It was only later that she came into the picture. Ethna is Ethna McCarthy, who had been Con Leventhal's second wife. She had died years before Owen and Con met. And it was only years later, after Con himself had died, that Ethna and her writing really came to Owen's attention. Well, after Con died, I used to visit Marion in Paris in a little flat in a Boulevard Montparnasse. And one day she gave me a a case of papers, and she said, you'll know what to do with these. Owen did what most of us would do. I, I took them home and put them in an attic and had left them there for some time. And years later then, I took them out and went through them and had to decide what I was going to do with them. And what he did was give the main archive of Con Leventhal's papers to Trinity College and set up a scholarship in his name. But as well as the papers relating to Con Leventhal's work, he found something else. Amongst these papers was a little notebook uh, with Edna McCarthy's poems. And uh, I'm, I'm not a poet, although you don't have to be a musician to appreciate music, and likewise you don't have to be a poet to appreciate poetry. But at the same time, I know that poetry has to be judged very critically. And he was certain that this work was of value. I thought they were beautiful poems. I, I thought they were, that they were so beautiful that something had to be done with them. But at the time, I was busy with other things. You know, I was running a department of cardiology out in Bowman Hospital, and there were a lot of pressures. So I, 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 I put them aside, knowing that I would come back to them at some stage. And... 
knowing that I had at least done some basic groundwork by typing them out and putting them into some sort of order. I took them out a couple of years ago and I asked Gerald Daw if he would look at them. I was with Dr. O'Brien as I knew him then in his capacity as a, as a doctor, a medical doctor, and we were having this consultation. And uh, he started to talk to me about some of his contacts with Samuel Beckett and so on. I was, of course, over the moon about this. As a poet and professor of English at Trinity College Dublin, Gerald Daw had already heard of Ethna McCarthy. I first heard about Ethna McCarthy really when I was uh, doing some work on Beckett back in the 70s. And I was conscious of the fact that she was a presence there in his life as a young man. But that was about it. He was intrigued to see what Owen had in his possession that had belonged to her. So Owen opened up this uh, file, this box file, and in it there was a very old-fashioned kind of notebook. In fact, I've used these myself, a little hard, hard-covered uh, notebook. And inside it there were the cuttings of ethnic poems from newspapers, journals, and also uh, a series of handwritten poems. When I read them the first time, I said, thought to myself, these have to be published. Frost. Tinsel rain on the window pane, blue snow on the road below, tangerine glow from curtained casements, the tenting of the sky swings low. The washing on the line that gaily frolics in burlesque of owners demure or swaggering, wild bludgeoning of striped shirt sleeve or flimsy frills of lace faint flickering or merry romping children's frocks, stout dishcloths, or slyly dancing socks. On trammel slough exult, and flag the scarecrow, master of their cult, or Saturnalian insult. But suddenly grotesque, they freeze in tortured attitudes, paralyzed by winter in their sin, and rigor mortis has set in. The notebook was in a fairly good condition, but what we had difficulty with was some of the uh, handwritten poems which were written in ink had faded a little and uh, we had to use a rather imposing magnifying glass to get the, get the words. And then some of the words were difficult to, to make out. So we spent hours and hours and hours trying to find out what some of these technical words were until Owen recognised them as being medical terms. I'm in Bowles Bridge in Dublin. The RDS is just around the corner. And I'm looking for a house called Desmond at number two, Sandy Mount Avenue. Number three is over on my right, but on the left, where I'd expect to see number two, there's a block of apartments. So it looks like number two no longer exists. But if I look down the road, there are some handsome older houses which give a better sense of what this street might have looked like when Ethna McCarthy lived here with her family in the early years of the 20th century. I mean, Ethna's background is very interesting, upper-middle-class Catholic background. Uh, she was born in the north, but moved with her father and family back down to Dublin, where he was from. Brandon was his name. He was a very well-known public health doctor. And she lived in Sandy Mount. Obviously grew up in comfort, privilege indeed, and 
she was surrounded by a cultured uh, middle class, upper middle class environment, you know, very well connected to the Dublin scene. I just find it so wonderful to access her particular view of Dublin. Like Esna McCarthy, poet Jessica Traynor grew up in Dublin and the city features in her work. And in her poem Advent, Esna McCarthy brings together images of the city and of nature. I just really love the musicality of this poem. You know, there's almost a kind of a Hopkins-esque flow to it um, and a real sense of this wonderful profusion of images and sounds. I love that we have the seagulls on Grafton Street, which could be an image from today. And I just love that notion of, I suppose, nature reflecting on the angst and the storm and drang of, of humankind. Advent. Gay geisha of the spring, the almond blossom flaunts her fragile finery beneath the darkening eye of March, ignores the taunts of winter's tottering mockery, nor heeds the screaming seagulls dip and pass, flashing their storm-stained shadows on the glass of shops in Grafton Street. But crisp and neat awaits a foreign festival. While down the chill canal, Bright, brittle surfaces reflect dark tousled trees who genuflect, jostled by a hurrying breeze. Within, in the nests, the immortal egg on shattered rests, and dying eyes grown puzzled and forlorn, reproach our grief with gentle alien scorn, saying, all things stiffen from this same disease, we only die of being born. We get the sense of this as a city of contrasts, as a city of, of beautiful springs, but harsh weathers. And there's something, I think, Beckettian, or perhaps, you know, it's actually more of McCarthy's timbre in the poem that influenced Beckett. It's very interesting to see those correspondences teased out, particularly in the final lines of the poem, which have this wonderful, wry, uh, witty darkness to them. Well, she met Beckett at Trinity. I mean, Beckett was in Trinity, she was in Trinity, Leventhal was in Trinity. They were, they were all there together. And uh, there were others like Dennis Johnson, who was also very close to Edna McCarthy. So I think Edna McCarthy was a woman with a very liberal outlook on life. Uh, she was very intelligent. And uh, she was different perhaps, than many women of her time. In fact, there's no perhaps about it. She was different than most women of her time. She had a great energy about her, and any comments that we've discovered, any reflections on her, they always refer to her energy, and it's almost like a charisma that she had. And uh, men were drawn to her uh, quite clearly, both because of who she was, this young, dynamic woman, but also her intelligence. She was absolutely formidable in terms of uh, reflecting on their work that they showed to her or uh, the kind of badinage that happened between her and, and others. And Beckett, of course, was absolutely bowled over by her. She was the inspiration for much in his writing. I mean, Dream Affair to Middling Women would not be a book were it not for Edna McCarthy. And she becomes almost a figure in his early imagination. 
whom he calls Alba. At the end of the streets, they parted. The Alba boarded a tram, and like a Cezanne monster, it carried her off. It moaned down Nassau Street into the darkness, little thinking what a royal and fragile Tupney fair it had in keeping. Now, Alba is a Provençal term for a poem, which means the dawn that separates lovers. And um, you could see how the young, somewhat neurotic, imprisoned figure of Beckett she was almost drawing him out of himself. And I think at the time of her writing her poems, and Beckett would have been aware of her poetry. He had to be. I mean, some of them were published. A number of them were published. So he knew about her poetry, and he would have read her poetry. And I think it's probably fair to say that at the time when they were both contemporaneous, if you know what I mean, she was a better poet than he was. Trinity College is in the heart of Dublin. And when you go onto the front arch and onto front square, it brings you away from the noise and traffic of the city centre into an oasis of study and learning. Esna McCarthy had already taken a secretarial course and gone on to study at the Royal Irish Academy of Music before she became a student at Trinity in 1922. Dr Maria Johnson has written about her life and poetry in the book Irish Women Poets Rediscovered. She was an undergraduate there at a time when, of course, the sexes were segregated. Um, so male and female students were not allowed to meet on campus. They were able to attend lectures together. Ethna McCarthy was studying Spanish and French. Herself and Samuel Beckett would have shared many classes uh, together, although she was a, a year ahead of him. Ethna was an exceptional student. I mean, her presence clearly was as a stellar undergraduate obviously marked out for an academic career as a humanities scholar. Ethna McCarthy began her academic career lecturing in French and Provençal literature at Trinity College. As well as teaching, she wrote and she translated poetry. A very sensitive ear for what language is and what language does. Former Ireland professor of poetry, Eleni Cullinan, herself a poet and translator, sees Ethna's translation work as significant. A translator is a reader and someone who has really had to penetrate as best they can into the meaning of a poem in a foreign language. So it's very interesting to find her translating poetry and but also writing about her knowledge of languages and I suppose the dimension that that provides. It's quite exciting to see her from her early stages, almost going through exercises of translating from the Spanish and then moving on to translating from the German. And then suddenly taking the experience of working in, this, in translation into her own poems and starting to write with great confidence about her own experiences in a poem like Barcelona. Barcelona is a fine example of the way that McCarthy can 
make reality strange um, over the space of a few lines. And this is a very short poem. And yet in it, it has all the power of uh, a cinematic vignette. We know that we're in Barcelona, outside a cafe perhaps, but the rug is pulled from under us by this strange, even menacing atmosphere that's created. And I think um, McCarthy's use of what I would see as surrealist techniques in her work anticipates in some ways the work of a writer like Sylvia Plath. And that that ability to take a landscape or a location and, and make it deeply strange and to bring out troubling aspects to create a world of its own in the poem is deeply striking. It's mysterious. It's a poem by somebody who has discovered that they don't, you don't have to say everything. And there's this marvellous line where they laughed and talked in a tongue I knew but could not understand for the blankness in my head. And I think the way one listens to a foreign language that one knows, that one hopes to understand, and the way one's sometimes frustrated by the fact that people are talking too fast or they're all talking together or whatever, she's captured that. And that's such an interesting experience with language and how we relate to language and through language to poetry. Barcelona. Been ill I ate only hake and white grapes in the land of wine, and the mariners talked of ships and iodine. Cockroaches crawled on shaded walls. Outside light filled the street. The cloth and the fish and the grapes were white, but the mariners were eating meat and laughed and talked in a tongue I knew but could not understand for the blankness in my head. Where now is your ship, mariner? And what was it you said? In the 1930s, Ethna McCarthy was at Trinity College, lecturing in the Department of Modern Languages, working as a translator and publishing some of her own poetry. And then she decided on a radical change of career. It often happens that doctors desire medicine to go on to literature, but I don't know of any example where somebody deserts a, a very successful academic career in literature to turn to medicine. So she's very unique, I think, in that regard. Her new medical knowledge made its way into her poetry. And as a medical doctor himself, Owen O'Brien can vouch for the authenticity of a description that takes us right into the operating theatre. I think the theatre is a marvellous poem in that it's got the subtitle of The Probationer's Song, which is really, of course, the nurse probationer. And she's assisting in theatre. And often one is drafted into assistant theatre and you don't really know what's going on. And you often had, had to provide assistance at the surgeon's beck and call without really knowing what he was going to ask you next. And it is true that the sister, the theatre sister, at least in those days, there are of course much bigger teams involved now, but in those days the theatre sister ruled the roost. The theatre. Green-white enamel and sunlight and steel and every gowned figure tense. Only the patient cannot feel hush and ritual 
ether incense, sweat and heat, I must not fall on my drowsy feet. Ether is sweet, ether is sweet, this won't do at all. I seem to sway, holding this tray, waiting and waiting. What did sister say? The clock on the wall has surely stopped still. Sister is watching me, some mistake? I must keep awake, I must keep awake. Two pigeons stare from the window sill, nudging each other's wings. Sometimes they say the strangest things and the fever-bright eyes criticise. Thanks to sister and surgeon too, though all they do is cuckoo. Nurse! That is sister's subdued abuse. I know she knows I'm not much use. My God, I nearly dropped this tray. How is the new patient? The surgeon barks. Still here, the anaesthetist remarks. At last he's taking off the cover and I can go. This operation's over. I don't think we know really why she moved from her preoccupations with literature, with languages, to becoming a doctor. Uh, maybe there was a, a sense in which she felt that she needed to do something else. And of course, with her father's connections, she would have been almost inspired to become a doctor. There may have been a social conscience there too. Certainly, it, it pops its head up in some of the poems, uh, her awareness of poverty and the, uh, the difficulties for women in, uh, living in inner city Dublin in, in the 20s and 30s. Today, in Dublin city centre, in the busy shopping streets, we can look around and see designer handbags in a shop window and just yards away in a shop doorway, pieces of cardboard making a bed for someone who's homeless. Esther McCarthy wrote of similarly shocking contrasts in her poem, Nell Gwynn. Here's Jessica Trainer again. The figure of Nell Gwynn, the famous 17th century courtesan, obviously comes to mind from the title. Um, but then this image of a tawdry Dublin with beauty and dirt and decay all jostling together. And for me, what this really reflects is McCarthy as a paediatrician. And I know that a lot of her publications in uh, various different medical journals were around public health issues. Things like threadworm, lice, all of these kind of ailments of the poor that came from poverty, overcrowding, uh, a lack of knowledge and information about how to avoid these avoidable ailments, which of course were brought upon by overcrowding, lack of nutrition, all of these various things. Nell Gwynn. The patina of Dublin holds your image still. The copper glint of unshawled hair, bleached by wind and rain perfumed by flowers and offal of back streets, and Andalusian cousin eyes, beguile and cheat, simply as a right, a trade for stale food, stored under a bed unmade. Two oranges a penny, Nell, fish and violets and aspidel. This is still your century, and who cares or ever learned to care about the smell? On Saturday, the maggots sprout their wings and glamorous Dublin clad in shoddy silk conceals her sores with regal air. Ecstatic lice rejoice in carefully curled and uncombed hair. And after all, what harm? 
Dublin is still the courtesan of kings. The wit, the laughing eyes are there. But what if dirt has lost its charm? She really does demonstrate here a social consciousness, which sets her apart from some of the more kind of lyric-minded poets of the time. I mean, still, there's such a fabulous music to this piece, but there is a sense of wanting to bed down into, into some difficult realities, which I think makes for work that's really lasting. While she pursued her medical career, Esna McCarthy continued to publish poetry. Maria Johnson again. It's very interesting to trace her living presence, if you like, as a writer across the pages of magazines and newspapers of the day. And if we take just the Irish Times as an example, she published quite a range of poems in the pages of the Irish Times, poems including Viaticum, Exile, Insomnia, Frost, Advent, Evergreen and Harlequin. It's wonderful to come across these poems, you know, because you see her as part of a very vibrant literary culture. Her poems are published alongside articles by the likes of Austin Clarke, Patrick Kavanagh. So all of the famous writers of the time are there, you know, alongside her, her own poems. In 1944, her work was included in an anthology of poetry that had been published in the Irish Times called Poems from Ireland. In 1948, then, she was once again selected for inclusion in an anthology uh, that was published in New York titled New Irish Poets. So again, we have this sense of her career really growing and three of her poems were selected for inclusion in New Irish Poets. Among these was the poem Viaticum, which I regard as being among her finest poems. Viaticum captures, I think, the sadness of the ward at night. Wards are very sad places, they're places of illness. And it's actually rather rare to, to find somebody who puts this into words and puts it more importantly into beautiful verse as she did, did in, in Viaticum. It's tremendously evocative and it begins, the sluice gates of sleep are open wide and through the house its soothing silver tide from ward to ward flows grave and deep. And even just in those opening three lines, you can hear the way that she's manipulating sound. She's creating this rich, evocative, verbal music uh, that lulls the reader, describing the scene of the hospital ward at night. But as so often in a poem by Ethna McCarthy, we are then transported to a different world, to a stranger world, and in this instance, it is the underworld of Greek mythology, as Karen carries souls across the river Styx, and the old, old woman and a little child hope to meet each other in the underworld. And it is on this image that the poem closes. The Atticum The sluice gates of sleep are open wide, and through the house its soothing silver tide, from ward to ward flows grave and deep. Now flood, now fretful trickle, and some of it leaves marooned who cannot sleep. The nurses chart its course all night, and those who drowse, and those who tell their beads, and those who coma vigil keep. Sunken beyond the lure of light, some watch the shadows with unfocused eyes, dull and indifferent, ears attuned, to soundless music of the boatman's oar 
and rhythmic singing of the rowlock strain as the dark ferry swings to shore. An old, old woman and a little child soon will meet each other there. But who knows what gay roisterer before this dawn will pay their fare? It really is a very dark and unsettling poem, but it also shows just how deeply attuned McCarthy was to the reality of death and, and of human suffering. And she never shied away from that in her work. She sees life in the shadows. She regards those suffering, those in pain, and brings them in, into her work in this way. So we are never allowed to forget the reality of, of human suffering. And the reader leaves a poem like this changed. And these poems, I think, are very unique in that she is writing from the viewpoint of, of, of a poet who has turned late in life to medicine. The former Royal City of Dublin Hospital is here on Bagot Street and it's probably more commonly known as Bagot Street Hospital. It is, or rather it was, an impressive red brick and terracotta Victorian building but today it's a sorry looking sight. It's lying empty and unused. All the windows and doors on the ground floor are boarded up. After Esna McCarthy graduated from Trinity College with a degree in medicine and surgery, this is one of the places that she worked she was particularly interested in children's health and she was ambitious. In the early 1950s, an exciting opportunity arose to progress her career. In September 1953, Ethna McCarthy was appointed medical leader of the World Health Organization's Maternal and Child Health Project, which would have taken her to Baghdad in Iraq in what would have been a very exciting and demanding new role for her. Sadly, however, she failed the physical examination that was part of the job requirement. And we know from a letter written by Samuel Beckett at the time that McCarthy had signed the contract. She had left her life in Dublin to take up this post. So it must have been a huge setback. Um, she indeed spent time with Beckett in Paris in the months following on from this disappointment. And she was trying to get the decision reversed at that time. Um, but Beckett, you can tell from his, his letters, he, he is deeply concerned and, and trying to help her. Uh, it's a wonderful testament to their friendship. And they spend much time together in Paris in late 1953, having dinner together and reminiscing. Beckett's relationship with Ethna didn't wane. It was always there throughout the 40s, even though he was in, in Paris or on the run and she was in Dublin or ultimately in London. She married, eventually, one of his closest friends and confidants, Con A.J. Leventhal. And they corresponded and they met. So there was always this ongoing friendship and connection. Her relationship with Beckett was that he very clearly loved her and loved her very much. I, I think it's fair to say it was probably unrequited love, but let's not worry ourselves too much about that in, in the way that people become obsessed with the physical relationship, whereas it's very often the cerebral relationship that's uh, more important.
1958, Khan let Beckett know that Ethna was not well. He visited her in Dublin, and it was clear that she was terminally ill with throat cancer. The letters that he wrote to her from France are heartbreaking. Though we said little in Dublin, I think all was said there and nothing to add for the moment. My silly old body is here alone with the snow and the crows and the exercise book that opens like a door and let me far down into the now friendly dark. I don't think, dear Ethna, I can be of any use just now, either to you or Con. But if you want me, all you have to do is send for me. I send you again all that was always and will always be in my heart for you. Ethna McCarthy died of throat cancer in a hospital in London on the 24th of May, 1959. She was only 56. As you read through these poems, you see what a tragedy it was that uh, she died so young. I mean, in the late 1950s, 1959, moving into the 60s, there's every likelihood that, like Patrick Kavanagh, like Austin Clark, she would have found a publisher uh, who would have supported her in her 50s and 60s and onwards. That wasn't to be, alas. Ethna McCarthy's original notebook has now been rescued from various dusty attics, and these days it's kept safely in the library of Trinity College in the care of assistant librarian Jane Maxwell and her colleagues. Over the coming years, members of the conservation department will decide how best to store this delicate physical object, this little notebook with her handwritten poems and newspaper cuttings and bits and pieces of other papers stuck in between the pages. And it is intended that the notebook will also form part of the virtual Trinity Library. This item will be digitised eventually and it will be made available freely online on the library's digital collections platform. Having said that, the item is, in the old school fashion, available to readers who wish to come in to the library and sit in a reading room and look through it. And to tell you the truth, even though we do digitise as much material as we can, we will always have people for whom the actual physical artefact retains an overriding significance and people who will have looked online and seen things and learned all they feel they can learn from them will eventually ask if they can see the original and of course that will always be a possibility. There's one other tantalising possibility that a recording of the voice of Ethna McCarthy might still exist. Two of her poems that we know of were broadcast on Radio Erin and one of these was titled Old Toys. It's thrilling um, for me to think of her words, you know, being broadcast on the national airwaves in this way. Old Toys is particularly suited, I think, for radio in the way that it plays on the audible relation between two words, embryo and ember. So the relation between birth and death, the proximity of birth and death, the fact that in the midst of life we are in death, is played out across the lines here. 
Old Toys Breathe quietly now, the dolls are asleep. Old, deaf and blind, and sleep is kind. Life still flickers like the seed of fire in grey turf ash that can be fanned to the fragile glow of glimmering mind and rosy speech that gladly sinks deeper below from earthly ill. Wandering in quiet, they do not dream. The embers crumble, the room grows chill. Mouth open, jaw relaxed, they give the simulacrum of disordered death. Stiff effigies, eyes gummed, but still they live. Do not rouse them, do not weep, these embryos of eternal sleep. We know that that poem, Old Toys, was broadcast on Radio Erin on the 31st of January 1949. And perhaps, just perhaps, there's an old, dusty reel of tape buried somewhere in the archives of RTE. To date, it has not been found. What a find it would have been had we have caught her voice as she read, as she did some of her poems on Radio Erin. Uh, that would have been quite something. Esna McCarthy has in the past been too often relegated to a footnote in the story of Samuel Beckett. Her own poetry and her own story have now emerged. Anybody who's interested in poetry should be interested in the work of Esna McCarthy because her poems at their very finest startle us, they surprise us and they unsettle us and they, they make us think. She's such a, an exploring poet. I think she is a seeker, a questing figure that is personally as well as poetically of great interest. The publication of her poems by Lilliput Press in 2019, edited by Owen O'Brien and Gerald Daw, is only the beginning of the rediscovery of Ethna McCarthy, doctor, linguist and poet. We see this book of poems as being just the beginning of uh, what I hope will be a critical study, a more elaborate study, if you like, of this remarkable woman. The hope would be that a book, a biography, would emerge out of this material, which would firmly put her on the map. The Chestnut Tree. The chestnut tree has thrown her russet gauntlet down and stark but for her girded bark watches in every street and town, outrunners of the winter's dark, the python fog, the stinging sleet. Manhandled by the wind, spat on by bitter rain, she hears unsheltered feet, dispirited tread the glare she flung for them. The snow will wind her shroud in vain, for she through love will live again. <laughs> 